please turn in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, uh, chapter 21. When we look at the book of Proverbs, which we've been doing this fall, we find so much practical wisdom given to us. And, of course, a lot of this deals with uh, handling financial matters, business principles, uh, uh, whether it uh, has to do with uh, the way we run our business or our home. And thought we might uh, take a moment and look through some of those today as we have our Pledge Sunday. You know, if uh, God offered a course on how to be, how to handle your finances, let's put it that way, would you take the course? And I believe that we do have such a course here in the book of Proverbs. Of course, you have many other related passages of Scripture that deal with that. Some 13 of Jesus' parables dealt with money. The first uh, principle that we hit is the principle of having first given yourself. In verse 27 of chapter 21, it says uh, that the sacrifices of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, much more when he bringeth it with a wicked man. The sacrifices of the wicked are an abomination. Uh, why would the offering of the wicked be an abomination to the Lord? Well, we need to first remember what Scripture means by wicked. In biblical terminology, a wicked person is a little different than we think of. When you think of a wicked person, what do you think of? And before you became a Christian, did you think of yourself as wicked? Probably not. But biblically, everyone who is not a Christian is wicked. You have two categories of people. Wicked people and righteous people. And, uh, or you have fools and righteous. A wicked person is anyone who is not right with God. Anyone who does not have the true fear of the Lord to use the Old Testament phrase. Anyone who is not a true Christian, to speak of it in New Testament terms. Anyone who has not realized his unrighteousness, that we have not been right in the sight of God, we have not kept God's commandments to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves, therefore we are unrighteous. But that that's why God sent his Son, because we are unrighteous. And his son came and took our unrighteousness upon himself, took the guilt of it and the punishment due us on the cross and died an awful death, not just crucifixion, but damnation, separation from God, an awful death for our sins and made payment in full. And then when we acknowledge that, and we believe in Jesus Christ, that he was God the Son, and we put our trust in him for our forgiveness, instead of thinking that we haven't been too bad, or we'll improve our record or something. But we just trust in Jesus Christ alone for our forgiveness. Then we are righteous. We surrender our wills to him in repentance, and we are righteous. God declares us not guilty. He credits our guilt to Christ and Christ's perfect record to us. 
Well, we must give ourselves to him first in conversion and become righteous. Uh, but it says and until you've done that, in a sense, to bring an offering to the Lord is an abomination to the Lord. We might say, well, why? Even if you're not a Christian, why would it be an abomination to bring an offering? Well, one aspect of it might be brought out in the Living Bible paraphrase of the last phrase about bringing it with a wicked man. It says, especially if they are trying to bribe him. Why would a non-Christian bring an offering? Well, one reason could be to, to bribe the Lord, to, to, in a sense, think in terms of of uh, buying God's favor. And you cannot buy God's favor. Uh, there's no way we can buy God's favor. That's why Jesus Christ died. And uh, so that could be one reason. Another reason is that our bringing of an offering <clears throat> could be in lieu of doing what he told us to do. In other words, what he's told the non-Christian to do is to acknowledge his lost estate, his wickedness, and uh, that Jesus Christ is the Savior, and to commit his life to Christ. And in lieu of doing that, we tend to do something short of that. It's not quite so demanding as really giving myself, really surrendering my will, really trusting in Jesus Christ for my forgiveness. There's a sense in which you say, well, you mean the, the non-Christian shouldn't give anything? Well, first he should get his heart right. That's the big thing. Uh, this, if this is evading doing what God has told him to do, it's no good. It's offensive to God. If it's in terms of trying to stake, take a step of obedience and begin to turn to the Lord, then that would be a different matter. Uh, still not acceptable in a sense, not and not anything wrong with the act, but something wrong with the actor. And not anything wrong with the prayer, but something wrong with the prayer. I need to really uh, commit my life to Christ, to give myself first in conversion. But beyond that, we need to give ourselves in consecration once we become a Christian. Because if you haven't become a Christian, that's the beginning place. Have you done that? Have you really given yourself to Christ? Really surrendered to him? Is he your Lord and Master? Are you trusting in him only for your salvation? But even having done that, that's just the beginning of our walk with him. And we need to give ourselves in consecration to the Lord. And we need to do that continually. But sometimes, uh, sometimes <clears throat> there is a lag between a person giving themselves in terms of conversion, and then really facing up to the fact that now they are a Christian, some of the growing demands that has. And so it can be something of a crisis when you give yourself in consecration. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says, I beseech you by the mercies of God, God's been so merciful to you, that you present yourself a living sacrifice. He says, that's the thing for you to do now. Do it daily, but... If you haven't done it, then do it initially. <clears throat> Realize his claim on, on your entire life and give yourself a living sacrifice. In uh, 
Second Corinthians chapter 8, you have where Paul is writing to the Corinthian Christians and he's challenging them to give finances to help the poor Christians in Jerusalem. He's taking up an offering. And to challenge them, he speaks of how the Macedonian Christians had responded. And he said, out of their deep poverty, they gave very liberally. But first, they gave their own selves to the Lord. First, they gave their own selves. That's so critical. They were already Christians, but they gave themselves afresh. Lord, we want you to understand that we are your servants. We want to be living sacrifices. We bring our gifts out of deep gratitude to you and love for our fellow man. But first, we give ourselves. I was reading uh, the biography of Stanley Tam some time back and was impressed in reading that biography how many of these principles uh, that you hit in the book of Proverbs are brought out in his biography. Stanley Tam. I met Stanley Tam last August over in Korea. Uh, I'd read his biography some years before. He's a Christian businessman. He was converted as a teenager when he went to sell a lady a product and she listened to his sales pitch and he said, now I want to talk to you about Jesus Christ. And she witnessed to him and he accepted Jesus Christ. And uh, then he records uh, this further step in a sense when as a Christian some of the claims of the Lord on his life began to to really bear in on him, and he began to understand them. He says, uh, in business he was having troubles, and so he prayed to the Lord. Lord, I've got troubles. I've been gone eight days, and I haven't even made expenses. Uh, People don't get the point of my presentation. I need business. Please help me. says he knelt in silence in his motel room, and he expected God to reach down and touch him with love and assurance. Instead, I seem to hear him say, just a moment, Stanley, this is a two-way arrangement we have. You want me to bless you and your business contacts, and you know I've been doing it. But why should I help you anymore? You don't do anything for me. I took an honest look at myself that night. He was superintendent of Sunday school and that kind of thing. But he says, I took an honest look at myself that night and didn't like what I saw. I was pushing harder and harder in my business. I kept myself under pressure. I yearned for success. My relatives and friends were watching me. I wanted to impress them with my ability to emerge from shyness and ineptitude into a shining example of the local boy who makes good. That hotel room became a sanctuary as I confessed to God my selfishness and my cowardice. I want to give myself completely to you, I pray. From now on, my whole business is yours. Come in and take full control. Whatever you ask me to do, no matter what it is, I will submit to the best of my ability. I will look to you for the strength and guidance to do what you ask me to do. God had led me to take a major step in my spiritual metamorphosis, the step of obedience. That is so critical. You're not going to grow until you do that. Not going to grow. So critical. This is what we're speaking of here. He then goes on to really seek to give the Lord his business, in a sense, and to really consecrate his business to the Lord. And uh, we'll touch on that some more. We have the principle of having first given yourself. Have you done that? 
And then the principle of honoring the Lord with your substance. We spoke of that two weeks ago. Honor the Lord with thy substance. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Honor the Lord with thy substance with the first fruits of all thine increase. First fruits, the first portion to go to the Lord. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses burst forth with new wine. Now, you notice the principle there, that God is to be properly and promptly honored. And the way we do that, one way we do that, is with our substance, with our material resources. He is to be promptly honored <clears throat> with it. Uh, the, the idea of the first portion, no delay in a sense, and properly honored. Uh, the How do you properly honor the Lord? Well, in my opinion, you start with a tithe. Wherever you look in Scripture, when the Lord mentions an amount, it's the tenth. And bring all the tithe into the storehouse, the whole tithe. And that was what Paul was speaking of, the whole tithe. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. Put me to the test. If I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out such a blessing, there shall not be room enough to receive it. Uh, that, that type of thing you find throughout Scripture. And uh, I believe that is a proper beginning with the tenth. Uh, go beyond the tenth. The first fruits of all thine increase. Uh, go beyond the tenth as the Lord increases uh, your income. And the promise is, so shall thy barns be filled with plenty. God will respond to that. We heard Paul share how, as he gave, not even knowing how he would be able to, that God did some very unusual things in terms of the advertisements that came his way, opportunities to make commercials and so on. I remember some years back, a gentleman in our church who wanted to tithe, but his wife was opposed, and he wanted me to talk to her. How did I get into these things? Well, anyway, uh, I went over to the house, and we sat there and talked, and and uh, I gave a number of illustrations, similar to Paul's illustration of how people had stepped out and done this, and God had blessed. And she said, you don't understand. She said, all those illustrations, the, the fellow was in some kind of an occupation where he could make more money. Either sales would increase or something would happen. But my husband is on a fixed income. There's no way he's going to make any more money. And so your illustrations are not applicable. <clears throat> well, I said, uh, God can increase your husband's income. She said, no, God cannot. <clears throat> and uh, uh, she said, but, she said, uh, my husband wants to do this and... Uh, and uh, it does seem to be the biblical thing to do, and I don't know how we're going to do it, but uh, I'm agreeable. And we had prayer, and I left. I drove home. When I got home, my phone was ringing. There was a lady. She said, five minutes after you left, a phone call came in from Dothan, Alabama. It was a man in a similar business. He wanted to hire my husband to do some extra work on the side. God has increased my husband's income. <laughs> I thought, doesn't the Lord have a sense of humor? Praise the Lord. <laughs> uh, the, uh, <clears throat> honor the Lord with thy substance. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty. God will bless. 
And uh, this is the basic thrust of Scripture. We're not saying you automatically will immediately see an increase in your income. We are saying you'll be blessed, and many times uh, he works it out so there is a material increase, if that what would be good for you. Uh, the, um, again, to use Tam as an example of that, as he struggled with God's will for his life, he came to a point where he felt the Lord would have him to make him the senior partner of his business. And he talked it over with his wife, and it was a scary step. She said, well, how do you do that? He said, what I mean is that we give God 50% of the stock of our business. And that means 50% of the profits of our business, 51% of the profits of our business. We give him 51%, 51% of the profits would go to him from now on. And uh, so they got a lawyer to draw up terms where they gave God. Uh, uh, 51% of stock had a terrible time finding a lawyer who could do that, but uh, they found one, and he did it. And uh, in time, Stanley Tan gave 100% of the stock to the Lord. Uh, and uh, God has uh, really blessed him spiritually and in terms of his material increase. But he has this to say. If you want, he says, uh, uh, don't get your directions from me as far as how you should proceed. Get them from God. If you want my advice, however, I'd say this. One, make sure you tithe. Well, that's the scriptural premise and the least you can do. Then, as the Lord prospers you, increase your giving to 12 or 15%. If you continue to prosper, keep increasing the amount. Uh, he says, uh, don't ever simply try to emulate another person. Obey God above everything else. The principle of holding right motives... In uh, Proverbs 15:27, he that is greedy of gain troubleth his own house, but he that hateth gifts shall live. We must not be greedy of gain. In 23:45, it says, "Labor not to be rich." And Jesus said, "Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Put God first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added." Don't seek first. What you shall eat, what you shall wear, wherewithal you be clothed. Your heavenly Father knows that you have need of those things. Seek first the kingdom. It says, after all those things do the Gentiles seek. That's the way a non-Christian operates. He puts first material goods and so on. That's what he's oriented toward. He says, no, you be different. You seek first the kingdom. And if I'm going to seek first the kingdom, then my giving is a big factor in that. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What we have a tendency to say is, wait a minute, where my heart is, that's where I'll put my treasure. The things that my heart is set upon, that's where I'll, I'll naturally invest my money. But Jesus turns it around. He says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be. In fact, what he's saying is, you make, you make up your mind that I'm going to invest my money in God's kingdom. Because that's the way Jesus said do it, and out of gratitude to him. Because that's, that is the thing of priority. I'm going to invest my money there, and my time, and my energy. 
and my heart will follow. Then my heart will more and more be drawn there. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Uh, <clears throat> indulgence in excess is wrong and hurtful. 25.16. In 25.16, it says, Hast thou found honey? Eat so much as is sufficient for thee, lest thou be filled therewith and vomit it. Indulgence in excess is wrong and hurtful. And, man, that's, that's bad news because that's so commonplace where we live, isn't it? I was reading a very interesting and helpful book that I commend to you, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, by Dr. Paul Brand. Dr. Paul Brand uh, is a medical physician who uh, works at a leprosarium in Louisiana. Uh, he was a medical missionary for years, and now he works at this leprosarium in does a tremendous job, uh, but he's a great Christian. And he, he compares the human body with the body of Christ. He tells of seeing a beggar woman in uh, Madras on one occasion. And as she lay in the streets and she was gaunt and dying of starvation, <clears throat> beside her, attached to her body, was a tumor, a fatty tumor about the size of a baby, and uh, just attached. This was a tumor that was growing out of her side. And in effect, these fat cells were drawing all of the sustenance out of the rest of her body, as her tumor was well fed. And he said, uh, here's one part of the body starving the other part of the body. He says, you know, when I look at the way a lot of Christians in the United States live, I can't help but feel that we're doing the same thing to a lot of the body of Christ. What a sobering illustration he uses there. He says that uh, these cells in the tumor are, in effect, disobedient cells. They're in mutiny against the rest of the body. And uh, he says... I must concentrate on how I, as an individual cell, should respond to the crying needs of the body of Christ in other parts of the world. Beyond that, I should not and cannot make sweeping judgments about what the response of other Christians should be. But I must say, from the perspective of a missionary who spent 18 years in one of the poorest countries on earth, the contrast in resources are astonishing. At Valor, we treated leprosy patients on $3 per patient per year yet we turned many away for lack of funds. Then we came to America where you look at the luxury that we live in, he says, and I could not put out of my mind the image of that madras woman slowly starving to death while her tumor grew plump and round. He said, just consider the world as if it were shrunk into a community of 1,000 persons. In our town of 1,000 persons, 180 of us live high on a hill called the developed world. 820 live on the rocky bottomland called the rest of the world. The fortunate 180 on the hill have 80% of the wealth of the whole town, over half of all the rooms in the town, and over two rooms per person. 85% of all the automobiles, 80% of all the TV sets, 93% of all the telephones, and an average income of 5000 per person per year. 
The not-so-fortunate 820 people on the bottom get by on $700 per person per year, many of them on less than $75. They average five persons to a room. We had two rooms per person. How does a fortunate group of hill dwellers use its incredible wealth? Well, as a group, they spend less than 1% of their income to aid the lower land. In the United States, for example, of every $100 earned, $18.30 goes for food, $6.60 is spent on recreation and amusement, $5.80 buys clothes, $2.40 buys alcohol, $1.50 buys tobacco, $1.30, $1.30 is given for religious and charitable uses, and only a small part of that leaves the United States. You get some feel of his image there and why it is such a striking image. The principle of hard work, uh, the uh, 10th chapter and the 4th verse, the hand of the diligent maketh rich. And you find that the Lord gives his blessings as he gives the fruit of the earth. Uh, the farmer doesn't expect the Lord to give fruit apart from him engaging in hard work, and yet he looks to the Lord, if he's a Christian, to bless his hard work and to cause the fruit uh, to grow. And that's the way that we should approach uh, our business. And uh, we should not expect uh, blessing apart from hard work, in a sense. Again, to refer to Stanley Tam, uh, he says in reference to the way he proceeds, that he says, uh, when I've needed money in our business, I haven't asked God to send down some kind of green manna from the skies. I haven't expected a well-heeled Christian businessman to give me a handout. On the contrary, I've asked God to show me how I could upgrade the effectiveness of our business operations so we could generate the needed capital. In other words, I've asked him to illuminate my mind and guide my business decisions. And he has wonderfully answered this kind of a prayer thousands of times. My business is my pulpit. And I want to demonstrate God's power there, he says. Frankly, I don't believe I'm as good a businessman as our financial statements indicate. I believe I operate far above my natural capacity and simply am not the type who builds our kind of multimillion-dollar annual volume with a fine profit margin we've seen, which is exciting. But he attributes it to the Lord blessing his efforts, in a sense. The principle of hard work. The principle of honesty in financial dealings. Uh, in 2010, divers' weights and divers' measures, both of them are alike an abomination to the Lord. Honesty. The Living Bible translates it, the Lord despises every kind of cheating. Honesty in business. Uh, to quote Tim, after he became a Christian, the Lord impressed on him that he should go back to a store that he had stolen a 78-cent pair of gloves from and tell them that he had stolen those and pay for them. And uh, he, really, he really didn't want to do it. But again, that great principle of obedience. And he proceeded to do that. And he said that decision was so significant as he made himself do something that he didn't want to do, but that God was telling him to do. Uh, and uh, he gives a number of such cases in his, in his book of much, much greater amounts. On one occasion, 
he realized at the end of the year that the some 3,000 photographic laboratories that they uh, received silver from that had been gathered by a little collector that they provided. And then they would pay the people for the silver <clears throat> that they recovered. That due to just a little in miscalculation that he had wound up making $4,000 more than he should have from these 3,000 labs, which meant that he really needed to send each of those labs a little bit more than a dollar. 3,000 labs. <clears throat> but think of the money it would take him to do that because he'd have to calculate just what percentage each one of those would get. And when it was all over, they would only get a dollar or thereabouts. But for him, it was going to cost him a lot of money to do this. He said, Lord, what difference does it make? But inwardly, the Lord said, the money is not yours. And so for six weeks, he hired a woman who for six weeks worked on that, and finally they were ready to send out all these returns. And he thought, shouldn't I indicate why we're doing this? And he put a letter in explaining his walk as a Christian and why they were doing this. And he said that he wouldn't believe the thousands of letters or the hundreds of letters he got in response and how it opened the door to a further Christian witness to so many of those people that he was dealing with. Honesty in financial dealings. Principle of holding down indebtedness. You have warnings about suretyship, <clears throat> not uh, co-signing notes like in 1718. You're warned about that. But in... Uh, 22.7, the rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. Uh, hold down indebtedness. You have Bill Gothard giving principles of financial freedom. Uh, freedom from debt, not owing more than I have in cash or assets and not having any bills past due. Freedom from financial pressure, fear of unexpected expenses because every dollar is closely budgeted to meet past or present obligations. Freedom from loving money not focusing attention on the goal of getting rich, freedom from business entanglement, not allowing the cares of business matter or the worry of financial investments to crowd out personal concentration on loving the Lord and delighting in his word, freedom from get-rich-quick schemes, freedom from guilt of financial unfairness. The principle of helping the poor, the materially poor and the spiritually poor, Materially poor in 22.9, He that hath a bountiful eye shall be blessed, for he giveth of his bread to the poor. The spiritually poor, the poorest of all. In Proverbs 24.11 and 12, it says, If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn to death, if thou say, Behold, we knew it not, doth not he that ponder the heart consider it, and shall not he reward every man according to his works? That God knows that we know the desperate need of our fellow man apart from Christ. And here we are, faced with an opportunity to do something about it. The principle of helping the poor. He that hath a bountiful eye shall be blessed, for he giveth of his bread to the poor. We, I have a letter here to a lady about a lady, a letter about a lady. This is written by the director of Wycliffe Bible Translates. He tells of receiving a letter from a lady in Birmingham. I believe this lady is a member of our congregation. She says, I was unhappy about the amount of money I was able to give and began to pray about a way to give more. This lady's sole income is a Social Security check 
for $265 a month. I prayed, but my income stayed the same. Then the story of the widow of Zarepa came to me. I realized what he did for her. He could and would do for me. So I increased my giving to the three Wycliffe families I was supporting and let God manage what was left. Nor have I forsaken Billy Graham and a few others. It's such a fantastic miracle it takes my breath away. The amount left always covers my need. Praise the Lord. I ride on the crest of a thrill every day, and those thrills are better than physical food. My secret dream has been to do volunteer work with Wycliffe, but evidently I'm supposed to be just a giver. Let's let her act to challenge us. Edward Markham has a story, the parable of the builder. It says a rich man had it in his heart to do good, and as he walked over his estate, he saw a poor tenant farmer there on his place, and he thought about it. Uh, excuse me, this poor carpenter. The man was a carpenter, and he he called him, and he went over to a beautiful location on his property, his estate. He said, I want you to build me a house here, and I'm leaving the country. Spare no expense. He told him what he wanted. He said, make it of the finest material. And so the carpenter began to build, and he thought, now is my chance. And he skimped, and he cut, and he cheated in every way that he could, and put up a house that was really not good carpentership. When the owner of the estate came back, the carpenter took him over and said, see what a fine house I've built. And uh, he was pocketing the money really for himself. And the man said, well, that's wonderful. <clears throat> the carpenter gave him the keys. He said, now I want to give that back to you. I want you to live in that home. I want to give it to you. And the carpenter said, oh, if I only knew that I was building the home for myself. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for <clears throat> the challenge of your word and the challenge of your people. So many who challenge our own hearts as to our giving, as putting you first in a very practical way as we seek to honor you. Father, we pray that you would let us give ourselves first. Anyone who hasn't given himself in conversion, that he would give himself and in consecration. And we would pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.